While our markets are improving, and we appear to have averted global collapse, we know that too many people are still struggling. So we agree that full recovery is still a ways off. When Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in still very sunny and beautiful New York City. You guys are such show-offs. I'm Khana Jaffe Walt. It is beautiful as usual in Seattle here. Today is Friday, July 10th. And today, Adam, on the show, we are going to ask, what if all those poor countries that owe us money and they owe China money and the IMF, what if we all just said, you know what, forget it. You guys don't have to pay us back. It's cool. And speaking of poor countries, we're going to be following up on Wednesday's show where we looked at people around the world living on $2 a day. But first, our planet money indicator. The indicator today is $25.96 billion. That is the trade deficit for the month of May. So that means you add all the stuff that the U.S. sold to other countries and then you subtract all the stuff that we buy from other countries and you find out what we spent is about $26 $26 billion more than we earned. And that actually there's a truism in economics, which means that if we spent $26 billion more than we earned from the rest of the world, that means we had to borrow $26 billion one way or another to buy all that stuff. So we got further in debt to the rest of the world. Um, but $26 billion, that actually counts as really good news. For years, the trade gap was much higher Hannah, you know, I was the guy at NPR for many years who covered the trade gap as one of the things I covered. And every month, I would say, and once again, the U.S. has a historically high trade deficit, 50 billion, 58 billion, 60 billion, 62 billion dollars every month, month after month. So to you, this number sounds low. It's the lowest it's ever been since 1999. Yeah, it sounds shockingly low. It is victory. Well, it's a sad little victory. Um, We still have a high trade deficit, but it's a lot lower than it used to be because, of course, we're in a recession. People just aren't spending a lot of money. And the big question, and this is a big question for the next, you know, several decades, is has the U.S. made a fundamental shift? Uh, Are we likely as a society, as a country, to spend something closer to what we earn in real time? Or are we likely to just, when this recession is over, go back to to borrowing and spending huge amounts of money? I'm all into closing the trade deficit, Adam. I just want it to be after I get my new laptop. I just would like a new car and a Barbie playhouse. Um, no, I'm just okay. kidding. But- <laughs> yes, but... Well, that's exactly the point. Is this all pent-up demand? And as soon as people start feeling more optimistic, are they just going to blow all the money they saved during this recession? Right. So the question is, will I be able to hold myself back from buying that laptop? So now, Adam, let's move on to countries that are more indebted than we are. So you sat down with our intern, Matt Katz, to talk about poor countries and debt. So we are going to dip our toe a little bit more into life for the poorest in the world, although... um, we didn't go very far this time. I guess we, we could have gone to some part of sub-Saharan Africa or India or Latin America or wherever. But instead, since it was our poor intern, Matt Katz, we just told him to walk about five or six blocks over to the United Nations, um, which had a conference on the economic crisis and how it's affecting development 
for the poorest countries in the world. And Matt, from what I understand, it was pretty echoey in the hall when you were there. Yeah, not too many people showed up. It wasn't taken very seriously. The UN was hoping for it to be this sort of anti-G20. It was supposed to be a meeting of every single country instead of just the top 20 richest ones. And they really wanted people to come from the highest level, like world leaders. But besides a couple of Caribbean presidents, not many people showed up. Evo Morales and uh, and Hugo Chavez actually had been scheduled to come and give press conferences. And then when the time came, they just never showed up. Which is so – I mean you think of the the UN and global poverty and I don't know. what What's more important for – I, have, I guess they just didn't respect this conference for some I reason. I not. But, I mean, the cool thing was that it was really easy to get some time with some interesting, big, important people in the global poverty world. And I managed to speak with the top economist at the conference, Joseph Stiglitz. Of course, he was chief economist at the World Bank. And he also won the Nobel Prize in economics, like you do. And uh, he uh, teaches at Columbia. He does. Yes. And I spoke to him about what's keeping poor countries down, especially since the recession hit. And he told me that it's all about debt. Many countries have basically a choice. Do they make their debt payments or do they provide health and education basic level, not, not high level? And the debt bill is, is coming due this year for these countries. The U.N. says that they're going to owe $3 billion to other countries and about a $1 billion to private lenders. And those numbers are actually set to grow, Stiglitz says. What's happened is is that the recession has had big consequences for these countries. Developing countries like like those in Asia have made a lot of money building computer chips and stuff for, for us, for America and Europe. And that demand has gone down ever since the recession hit. And poor countries that rely a lot on exporting natural resources like oils and metals have been hit hard by the fall in prices for those products. So, so they owe all this money. Who, who do they owe the money to? Well, there's the World Bank and there's the IMF, as you would think. And, and there are also a lot of countries that hold a whole ton of foreign debt like China and Japan and the U.S. And even some big banks like Citibank and J.P. Morgan. Yeah, this always blew my mind when I first learned about it. But but the U.S. just issues debt. It issues bonds when it wants to borrow money. But uh, to learn that lots of countries in the world, they actually call up Citibank and say, hey, can you can you lend us a few billion bucks? Yeah, it's, it's almost like going down the street to your local bank and getting a mortgage, but on a much bigger scale. And they've actually been looking to take out more and more loans to make up for all the money they've lost in the recession. I spoke to another economist there at the conference, Martin Kaur, and he told me about this, this cycle of debt that countries face. They borrow new money in order to pay back the old money, and then they will not be able to pay back the new money, and they borrow again and so on. And after 10 or 15 years of this charade, you know, everybody came to their senses and said, look, let's eliminate the debt or let's have a, have a partial debt relief. But you have to go through 10 to 15 years of hell and the country in the meanwhile suffers. I don't need to make light of it, but it reminds me of my 20s having credit card debt and then you borrow money on another credit card to pay off the credit card that's next up. This cycle of, of borrowing to pay off debt and then you have more debt, etc. Well, that's exactly it, except instead of credit card companies and a bill, they owe this money to the IMF and to China and countries like that. And Corin Stiglitz say that the debt crisis facing these countries is in a lot of ways just like the subprime mortgage crisis and the credit crunch that happened here. And a lot of these borrowers are actually likely to default. Like it or not, uh, some of these countries won't be paying it back. Uh, 
just like in the United States, many, many people are walking away from their, uh, what they owe in their homes for the simple reason they can't pay what's on their homes. And poor countries are like uh, uh, poor, poor, poor Americans. They can't pay what, what they owe. They'd like to be able to. Uh, and the only thing you can do in those circumstances is to give people a fresh start. Nouriel Roubini, the, the economist we've had on a lot uh, from NYU who predicted so much of this crisis, he said that this uh, – he's said for years now that this wasn't just a subprime housing crisis. It was a subprime country crisis that, that many high-debt countries um, got, got more money than they probably – would under normal circumstances because of the crazy economy we had. Um, but it sounds like what Stiglitz is saying is, so let's just do a do-over. Let's just get rid of all the debt they've taken on. Well, they kind of are. And that's Stiglitz and Core. they have a couple of recommendations. They want to institute this moratorium on debt, basically make it so that countries in debt won't accrue any interest or have to pay anything back until the recession is over. And I'm not entirely sure how they're going to tell the recession is over. But there is a precedent for that. The IMF did that after the tsunami in Asia in 2004. They just put a freeze on the debt for all the affected countries. But Stiglitz actually had another recommendation. What you do is you look at uh, the origins of the debt, the capacity of the country to repay the debt, uh, the efforts that it's exerting, and you make a judgment of uh, how much the country can repay, and uh, the rest has to be written off. Uh, there's no collateral like there is uh, when you buy a home. Uh, you can't take a, a country over. But uh, what you do need to do is inevitably, in one way or another, to forgive the debt. So maybe not all the debt, but it sounds like a lot of the debt does just disappear. It just never gets paid back. Yeah, and in terms of international finance, that could be easily billions of dollars. I feel like I feel like mixed on this. Um, just what's going through my mind. On the one hand, I feel like if you if you lend money, just like if a bank lends money to a subprime borrower, it's on both of them. If the subprime borrower can't pay back, you can't just blame the subprime borrower. The bank didn't do good risk analysis, and it sounds like maybe that's what happened in in some of these loans. On the other hand. Um, it's a little scary to say, okay, you can get way in over your head, you can borrow a ton of money, and then we'll just write it off. Billions and billions of dollars we're just going to write off. You know, I thought the same thing, but Core, he actually argues that we kind of owe it to all of these countries. They had no part in this crisis. You cannot blame them for this. It's not that they overspend or they were profligate or they were corrupt or whatever it is. So they are the innocent victims of a collateral damage of an earthquake that took place somewhere else. You know, the epicenter is here. And uh, we should treat them as we treat the victims of a tsunami. And that's another thing. The tsunami, which I covered, it was awful. And it was, uh, but it was one small part of the world um, and it severely affected them and the rest of the world um, was, was unaffected. And so you can understand how the rest of the world can help. But this crisis is everywhere. I mean, we, we here in the U.S. are having a pretty hard time. So, so, so how does the whole world come together to, to help the whole world? It's, it's really confusing. But the one thing I noticed at the conference was that there's a lot of blame centered squarely on the U.S. And a lot of these guys, they're sort of left wing and they really wanted – 
the U.S. to to basically pay for all of the trouble they say that it caused. But it's not the only idea that's floating around out there. Um, most of the people at this conference were, were pretty much in the same boat with Stiglitz and Core. So I called up uh, this guy, William Easterly. He's a professor of economics at NYU, and he's often pretty critical of, of these sort of foreign aid plans. He thinks that these countries are a lot like subprime mortgage borrowers, but in a different kind of way. He says that repeatedly forgiving debt like this is causing what he calls a moral hazard, which is, is basically, like you said, these countries being addicted to free credit. The poor countries will, will have the incentive to borrow more because they can, they can rationally anticipate that the debt will be forgiven in the future. In fact, um, that may have been what explains the surge in debt that happened after the, the previous success in, in debt forgiveness, which happened in 2005. Bill Easterly has written several fascinating books, White Man's Burden and uh, I forgot the other one. Anyway, about the the downside of, of foreign aid and, and these kinds of plans. I mean, um, I, I might be summarizing them incorrectly, but that when the U.S. or other um, developed nations spend billions of dollars to help out these poorer countries, sometimes it reinforces uh, existing power structures. It, it prevents the needed changes that, that could help the country really leave poverty. W- what's he saying here? He he basically wants us to spend our money on strategies that let the poor countries help themselves because right now he says we're, we're treating them more like helpless victims and that's not really empowering them and it's reinforcing those power structures like you said. And there actually was someone at the UN conference that agreed with him in this way. Uh, his name is Yu Dong Ding and he's a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee for China's Central Bank. Lots of uh, uh, countries uh, are China's old friends. We should help them when they are in need. China will help those countries who borrow from China to, uh, to, to rebuild their economy, to develop the economy, so that they will be able to return money uh, as much as possible. So what kind of help is he talking about that China is going to give these poor countries? Well, it's, it's almost exactly what you would expect from China. China can provide uh, technical uh, assistance to those countries and uh, we can help them to train engineers and uh, uh, nurses and uh, teachers and so on. We can also uh, uh, invest in those countries, direct investment. That is not a free gift, right? Uh, we need uh, profit and so on. But uh, uh, direct investment will be very helpful for those countries which do not have enough uh, financial resources. So his plan is we'll help them, but we'll also expand our influence. We'll possibly have more access to their raw materials. We'll have, have deeper ties. It's a practical approach. Exactly. It sort of benefits China just a little bit. And China's already hugely invested in a lot of African countries. And at least according to you, it looks like they're interested in investing a lot more. Matt Katz, our intern. Thank you. This was excellent. And um, you know what? Next time you did so well, we are going to send you anywhere you want to go in Brooklyn or Queens. All right. Pizza shops. I'm up for that. Thanks, guys. So now we want to do a little bit of follow-up from Wednesday's podcast. We were talking about financial instruments that uh, people around the world use, people who live on $2 a day. Hannah, your, your folks are from South Africa, right? 
Yes. Yeah, so I was you, you had talked a lot about burial societies in South Africa, which are really um, interesting groups of people who get together and invest their money um, for funerals. So my friend Gretchen Wilson, she works as a reporter in Johannesburg, and she just asked around in her building for people who invest in burial societies. And she said tons of people told her, yeah, that, I do. So, Adam, you called one of them. We gave a call to Richard Mudau. He lives in Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, and someone Gretchen knows. We got him on his cell phone. The phone line sound quality is not that great. And Richard has, has a bit of an accent, so, so I'm going to quickly paraphrase what he told me. So this is a guy, he makes, um, I'm going to look up the exchange rate, so I have it right in front of me. Um, he makes 2,000 rand a month, which according to Google is around $250 a month. Uh, that is a bit more than the $2 a day type of income that we were talking about the other day. Um, and he says of that $250, he puts around 200 rand or $25 every month into two different burial societies. So the idea is every month, it's kind of like an insurance plan, but a very specific one. Every month, he puts 25 bucks uh, into these burial societies, and it, he says it's automatically deducted from his bank account. And if someone in his family dies, it could be him, his wife, his parents, or his kid, then that funeral insurance burial society will pay part of the funeral. They'll give around 10,000 rand, and since I'm not that quick on math. I'm looking that up. That is around 1200 U.S. dollars for the funeral. It'll be a bit less for a kid, maybe half that if, if his kid dies. Um, now, if he didn't have this burial society, he'd have to save for, for years. And, and if he wanted to cover everyone in his family, that would be many, many years of savings. Um, so, so he says this is a great way to ensure he has enough to cover a funeral if someone dies or that his family can if he dies. But Richard says the payout, even $1,200, it's nowhere near enough to pay for the entire cost of the funeral. Yeah, it costs more than 1000 because we have to buy a coffee. We have to buy maybe a cow to, to prepare the, the food for the people who can... Uh, who, 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 the, the, the people, the, the, like the, the relatives and other people around where we were staying, they used to come and help every day so that, so that they, they can, they want to, they, we have to support, support with them with the food. That's why we use a, a lot of money. If someone maybe passed away, we can spend maybe 20 to 25,000. Wow. So 10,000 yeah. will not do it all. No, we do not do it at all. That's why if maybe you've got a, a funeral scheme to the, to the other company and you've got maybe to the other company, it's better because you can get 10, 10 to, to, to those two different uh, policies, you see. It will be better. Maybe you can just put uh, 7,000 or 5,000 on top so that you can bury your, your, your member. And what if you said... If if someone died and you said, forget it, we're not paying for the funeral, we won't have a lot of family, we won't pay, we won't give food, what would happen? No, this is our tradition, you see. All the, even if someone's past, it's not my family, or the people who are living with, they use all the people that are doing so. 
is the traditional. It's the way we, we, we used to. It's the way you do things. Yes, yeah. It's our tradition, in other words. It's your tradition. You have to do it. Yeah, you have to do it. People, they enjoy it if maybe someone passed away. We prepare the food and everything to call drink or liquor, you see. Oh, liquor too. Yeah, liquor too. So, Hana, he said that at, at around 25,000 rand per funeral, this isn't the most expensive thing that he will ever have to pay for. He said a wedding is, is uh, more than twice that. So a funeral is around 3,000 U.S. dollars. And again, this is a, a man who makes around $250 a month. Um, a wedding would be closer to 6,000 or even more. Um, uh, and there is no wedding insurance scheme, but the uh, funeral scheme, he says, is, is very helpful. It makes him feel that, that he can help his family uh, when, when the time comes. Right. And it sort of sounds morbid to plan for your child's funeral, but it's it's not as if he's, you know, planning for the for the kid's funeral soon. It's just sort of being responsible and, and really seen as a big part of the culture that it's important to be responsible in this way. Exactly. And, and, and as he said, he, never, he doesn't know when a tragedy will happen. And this way he knows his family is covered. People who heard Wednesday's podcast know that, that we were looking at all the many complicated and interesting financial products and solutions exist for some of the poorer people in the world to solve their problems so that they can make their money work for them, even in poverty. Yeah, and one of those things were called ROSCAs. So those are Rotating Savings and Credit Associations. So we heard that they were used by poor people in India and South Africa and Bangladesh. Um, But Laurie Hilton heard that. She lives in New York. And she said these are not just tools that are used in faraway places. They are also used by immigrant communities in the U.S. They are also used by immigrant communities right here. And our producer, Caitlin Kenny, talked to Laurie to find out what her Rosca was like. In my community, I guess, in the West Indian community, we generally refer to it as a partner. Um, and basically, it works a lot like what was described in, in your last podcast, where um, a group of people get together. Uh, they each week contribute a certain amount of money. So the one I was doing was like $100 a week for six months. Um and they determine one person to be the quote-unquote banker, and that person collects the money from each person every week, and they get a small percentage of of the money collected as you know a fee for doing the banking and keeping track of everything. And then it goes to one uh, one person out of the group, uh, and everyone gets a turn, and um, they're able to use the money for any number of things. I used uh, my money for well that month I was out of work. So for paying the rent and um, paying down some debt. Um, and but, it, was uh, this an organization that you sought out because you were looking for some financial help, or was it something someone invited you to join? Um, it was something that I was invited to join. I mean, they're pretty common. Uh, so, you know, I have cousins who either run them or are in one. Uh, this one I, I uh, got to hear about from my sister's ex-husband, he was actually organizing it, uh, and so he was collecting the money every week. So um, I've never, I've never really had to seek it out, but I always know about one going on somewhere. And how does someone become the quote-unquote banker? Um, well, if you choose to organize one, then you 
would be by default. You could become the banker by default. Um, but I think it's really kind of a, it's about a trust relationship. So it's, 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 I guess the banker is selected by the people, um, you know, the people that you trust the most to, to do it. It's usually the organizer though. And how many people were in your Raska? Oh, um, I don't know, like 60. Wow. That's pretty big. Yeah. Is that typical for the average size that you would see? Um, I don't know. It, it depends. It it depends on how many weeks and how many how many weeks and how much. Um, so they can be anywhere from I'd say probably the smallest is about twenty people, twenty five people. I don't think you'd want to get smaller than that because you wouldn't necessarily be able to build up a you know a large enough amount of money. And how did you decide who gets the money every month? The people sort of appeal and say, "Well, I need it this month because so and so," or is it predetermined? Oh, you, you negotiate that with a banker. So um, the banker basically puts together a list of who's going to get the money when, and you try and say, you know, you can say, oh, I don't need it for a while, or, you know, I need it right up front, or, you know. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that when we talked to Daryl Collins and Jonathan Murdoch about their book, Portfolios of the Poor, that they mentioned that um, a lot of the Roscas they encountered had very specific uses that people were saving up the money for, whether it was for school fees or for women in the village to buy a bunch of pots. Did everyone have similar goals going into the Rosca or is it everyone has just their own individual need? Uh, I don't know most of the people, other people who were in it. The person that I was connected to it through is, is the banker who was my, my brother-in-law. So I don't know what the other people were using their money for, um, but it could, yeah, it could have been anything. Um, like, like I said, I mean, depending on the size, I know my my cousin was in one where it was pretty large, and it went on for over a year, and she used her money to buy a house. Wow. Um, you know, she used the money for her deposit. So it it just depends. I I you mostly mostly don't know the other people in the circle, so the the person that you have the relationship with is the banker. So you're not getting together and putting oh, your no. money in every week. Oh, no, no. It's not like we get together and, you know, it's like a weekly party or a gathering or something like that and we have dinner and hand over our money. It, no, it's it really is like a business transaction. I know that I have to get my money to the banker by Friday at 6 o'clock or something like that. So Either it goes in the mail or I go by his house to drop it off or something like that. And why did you choose a Roska instead of, you know, a more traditional financial instrument, bank account, you know, money market account, something like that? Why was the Roska the route you decided to go? Um, I guess for me it is the traditional method because um, that's what I was uh, – it's, it's something that's not foreign to me because it's something that my family has always done. Um, however, I guess the, one of the appealing factors was getting the money in a lump sum. I was able to get an early hand, like, you know, your draw, um, we call it a hand. So I was able to get a relatively early hand, which meant that I was basically, you know, operating on credit. So it was like inter- an interest-free loan for me. And do you think of it, you know, people, when we first had this conversation about the idea of Roscoe's and burial societies, you know, we talked about how they were financial instruments, but people don't, you know, it's kind of a different association with that word. Do you think of it in your head as sort of a financial instrument? Do you lump it along with a bank account or is it sort of, you know, in a different category for you? Um, I, I guess it is a financial instrument. I hadn't thought about it that way at all until, um, I heard the interview, um, 
the podcast. Um, but yeah, it is a financial instrument, and I think it's a really legitimate one. So Lori says she would like to take part in Araska again, but it would be hard because she now lives outside the city, and most of the people she'd want to participate in Araska with live inside the city. You know, uh, Hannah, I have an idea. Why don't we start a Planet Money Raska? I could be the banker. <laughs> of course you would be the banker, Adam. You want to get the cut. Hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, so keep sending us your stories on the economy as you experience it. You can comment on our blog at npr.org slash money or send us an email to planetmoney at npr.org. I want to thank Caitlin Kenny and Jacob Gans, who produced... Today's podcast, they produce every podcast. They work particularly hard this week. I'm very grateful. If anyone's going to be running the Planet Money Rosk, I think it's them, Adam. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. All right. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Joffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Tell me what about the crisis prevention. You all forgot.